Hello and welcome to Dairy Dialogue 72, the weekly podcast bringing you the interviews on what's in the news in the dairy sector. I'm Jim Cornall, editor of Dairy Reporter, and I'm back from Paris, which was, as ever, crazily busy. Two years ago it snowed and so the city wasn't that hard to get around. Cue the 2020 event and the weather was a bit windy but in the low 10s Celsius, so certainly bearable. And of course it meant the metro was busy, the city was crowded and the Salon de l'Agriculture was absolutely swarming with people. Of the seven halls, the very top floor of Hall 7 is the venue for the cheese part of the show, but number one is the major attraction with lots of animals and the major milk display, and companies such as Lactalie, Danone, Lidl and many more. It was quite difficult to move in there, mainly because it's open to the public, which makes it a nightmare for interviews. Let me just play you a clip of audio that I recorded in the hall to show why it's next to impossible to record anything in there. Fortunately, that isn't the case for the Salon du Fromage, which is strictly business and strictly cheese. Well, mostly cheese. It's grown since the last time, probably about four times as big. Last time around, it was mostly French companies and a few from the UK, as that was the featured country. If only they'd known Brexit was just around the corner. They might have chosen Italy instead. This time around, it was Spain, and there were lots of Spanish cheese companies there, as well as from the UK, Belgium, Ireland, Netherlands, Italy, Greece, and a few more which means I can't remember the others. But it was a lot more impressive than last time around, and there were also processing and packaging companies there as well. I did a few interviews, although the Salon de l'Agriculture did close its doors early because of the spreading coronavirus outbreak. I wrote an article this week on how the COVID-19 coronavirus is affecting food shows, and it would appear that there are several scenarios playing out. There are a few shows that have been cancelled, a few that aren't paying the virus any attention at all, a few that are saying business as usual but are issuing precautions, and those that are either postponing or adopting a wait-and-see attitude. Our reporter in the US, Beth Newhart, was heading to Expo West, which was going ahead, but then 100 exhibitors pulled out then 200, and then it was postponed. It's really difficult to know what to do under the circumstances for event organisers who stand to lose millions if their show is cancelled, as do companies in potential lost revenue if they'd planned on being there. But obviously, when it comes down to health, revenue is kind of secondary. And while the WHO can talk about proper hygiene, there are plenty of people out there who can't be bothered to cover their faces when they cough or sneeze, or who think washing hands is for everybody else but them. And I saw plenty of all of those in Paris and on the plane, although of course it's not unique to Paris. One business that is doing extremely well on the back of this is hand wipes and sanitizers, which you can't get anywhere, which is a little bit of a worry for those of us who travel a lot. Anyway, I did get some good interviews. Two companies from Spain, the French Dairy Board, a French startup, a Dutch cheese distributor, and a Bulgarian company. Oh, there's another country that was in attendance. And Estonia, and Denmark, and Portugal. It's all coming back to me now. So let's move on to other things. We'll have the news for you in a moment, but before that, I'll let you know who is on the show this week. One of the guests is Ruth Martin. Business Development Manager for UK company Agrico, Jonathan Barroso, Marketing and Business Development Manager for Dairy and Ice Cream, and Jean-François Pelletier, Category Director, both of whom are at MAN. 
and two interviews from the Salon de Fromage in Paris with Charles Duke, Managing Director for the Americas for the French Dairy Board, and Constantine Bretonneau, co-founder of French startup Shah. And we'll have our weekly look at the global dairy markets with Charlie Highland from INTL FC Stone. To the news. I already mentioned the article on trade shows and coronavirus, something that changes from day to day at the moment. Also in the past seven days, we've had a story on the Malaysian dairy industry. Muller looking to drive down its plastic use in the UK. Danone looking to tackle climate change after releasing its 2019 financials. Swiss company Hochdorf is selling its German plant. Revenues are up at Glanbier. DSM is buying Glycom, and we had our monthly roundup of the new products on the dairy aisles for February. Or at least we had some of them. It's generally the tip of the iceberg. Valio has set its climate targets in line with the Paris Agreement, and in the US, the Laughing Cow has reformulated and rebranded its cheese wedges. These stories and more on DairyReporter.com, where you can also register for our webinar on sustainability and the need for environmentally friendly products, which is free, takes place on March the 12th, and it's one hour long. And March the 12th is right around the corner. Next week, in fact. I can wait while you go and register. Actually, never mind. You can just pause this and come back to it. So let's get to the interviews. We'll start off this week with UK company Agrico and Ruth Martin, the company's business development manager. Agrico is a global company that provides energy solutions and the need for cold storage, especially in emergency situations. We term ourselves as a solutions provider. So we provide heating, cooling and power packages across multiple industries. Globally, we're a global company, um, including the food and dairy sector. Our head office is in Dumbarton, up in Scotland. That's our manufacturing facility. And throughout the UK, we've got 15 locations strategically placed to service the country. Uh, we offer, um, so with regard to generators, we do gas and diesel generators to sometimes in place of mains power, but also to supplement in-house power systems when they reach the limit. So we can sort of do that peak locking to give them that extra capacity. Uh, and we could also offer standby generators. So in case of um, failure, we have immediate standby generators on site just to kick in and eliminate that outage. Um, we also offer heating and cooling packages. So we've got temperature control packages, um, again, that can supplement embedded systems that customers have always got, already got. But sometimes it's the seasonal ambient temperatures when they increase. Sometimes people don't have the infrastructure and, and systems in place to cope with that. Um, and especially in the dairy industry, it's quite critical, some of the temperatures. So we might just offer them a short-term solution through the summer months to get them through those periods. Some of these things that you make are quite big. You said you, you sell worldwide. Do you, do you have production in other countries as well or it's just shipped? No, we do have um, production in other countries, but Dumbarton is the um, manufacturing facility. But it still makes equipment for globally, um, but predominantly to support Northern Europe. You mentioned you sell globally. I assume there are big differences, not just in plug type, but also in voltages. Yes, we do. you're right. Yeah, yeah. Some countries work at different voltages or they might term things a little bit differently. So, yeah, because chillers, we work in um, litres per second or litres per minute. But I think in the US, they work in tonnage. 
and things like that. So it's just the language is a little bit different. But the idea of Agreco is we manufacture a lot of our bigger generators and uh, chillers are in containers. So they're in like 10 foot or 20 foot containers. And the idea is they can be shipped anywhere throughout the world. So we, we've got that crossover that they can be transported easily. As far as the dairy industry is concerned, what, what products do you have that are relevant in dairy? We can offer chillers into the um, dairy industry. So where we've, we've supplied an ice water system. So if the, after pasteurization, the milk wants cooling down quite um, quickly, but we can't have any glycol systems on site. So we can really monitor the temperatures within 0.1 of a degree to give them an ice water solution. So it's just near freezing point, which allows the milk to be cooled down to, to four degrees. And that helps with the, the storage and further processing. So that's a great solution that we, we can offer those. And this, are these the temporary air-cooled low-temperature AC units? Is that what those are, or is that something different again? No, that's, that's just a, a standard chill will give you that. Now, the AC units, they are to offer air, so it's cold air. So this is a chiller and an air handler housed in one single 20-foot container. Um, so it's plug-and-play, so it's um, it comes with a generator on the back of it as well because we can offer the full turnkey package because it's part of our solution as well. And it can deliver 100 kilowatts of air from as low as minus 33 to plus 11. So we can, using an ambient area, we can turn that into a cold store by introducing one of these uh, units. Uh, I mean, the great thing is it's uh, already on a trailer, so it's a quick installation. It can be delivered very quickly to site. And the idea is it can get backed up into a customer's loading bay uh, door. So if they've got the door available and spare, we'll back this unit into that loading bay door into to the either what is already a chill store or a, an area that needs to be cooled down to a certain temperature. And literally, a quick installation, turn it on, you're immediately getting air as low as minus 33, minus 28, minus 33. So we can create or supplement those cold store conditions. It really just cuts down on those, the downtime and any breakdown that they have because it's quite critical to maintain those temperatures so it doesn't affect the products. And what we do, we offer contingency plans. So before they even have a, an issue, we're proactively visiting that site. So we're already understanding where the customer's pinch points and maybe bottlenecks are. And to give them that peace of mind, we would already have a plan in place. So we'd go to site. We'd already do um, the calculations to work out the kilowatts that they would need if they lost the story, or indeed if we had a hot summer. We'd take photos of laydown areas, look at connection points, um, if they need any power to site, if it's a, a chiller and an air handler solution on its own. So we offer these plans that are already in place to give that customer the peace of mind should they have any breakdowns or anything on site. Right, and, and I, tend, I think we tend to think of like an ideal world where nothing ever breaks down or the temperatures are always constant, but that's really not true, is it? I mean, things things no. change a lot. So you're you're already ready for that kind of issues yeah. if they happen. You're right, and I think it's also about educating the customer because we've gone in and, and I specifically go and speak to customers, and sometimes you say, "Oh, do you suffer in, in summer? What what happens to your production?" They'll say, "Well, yeah, well we have to sort of." shut this down a little bit and only run this line because the temperatures are so hot. So we, the question we always say is, what if we could give you winter conditions during the summer? How would that affect? So sometimes they just put up with the problem and don't realize that there's a solution that someone can deliver those conditions so they don't have to affect production during those periods. So, so it's almost like we're proactively helping the customer without them realizing 
what what they need because they've always sort of put up with it and the we've had some great successes on that and it's really made a difference to some sites and especially with you working around the world as well because obviously conditions in england are different to you mentioned scandinavia you also probably have other markets where it's hotter than than here so it must vary according to the companies that you're dealing with yeah and it also varies depending on what product they have sometimes it might not be cost efficient for them or or things like that but nine times out of ten when you're going in it's just you're offering people just that option and that peace of mind and that that's really valuable some people especially if they're the one that's going to get the call at three o'clock in the morning to say something's broke down or they're not reaching temperature and they've got orders to to deliver it's it's a real real added value to anybody i guess when we're talking about the dairy industry specifically here there's going to be a massive extreme between huge dairy producers and very small companies are you able to help both extremes yeah that's exactly right i mean we we've, we've dealt with independent um, cheese makers and people like that so we've, we've give them solutions when they're as low as 25 kilowatts just some little solutions if it's just an, an area that they want cooling or just a really small flow that's part of their process up to doing multi megawatt chiller packages where we've been supplying to, to huge huge dairy factories and and things like that so the range that agreco can do is pretty broad and again, as I just mentioned, you, you tend to think of everything working as normal because everything's always the same. But there must be emergency situations as well that this would be applicable to if you needed to stockpile something or if the, you know, I, I guess yeah. there's lots of different scenarios that you there could be an emergency. Yeah, definitely. I mean, we've looked at due to obviously the B word, the Brexit word. But yeah, stockpiling was something that we sort of thought of. But then if they're temperature specific, then again, like I talked about with creating the chill stores or cold stores out of an ambient area because they just need the extra space. Fast response unit, the air conditioning cold store unit is great. The bottom line with that is that if in situations of emergencies, you can help out in some way. Yeah, I think I think half of the battle is knowing where you can go and what people people capabilities have. I think Agreco is sort of mitigating risk and risk management through our contingency plan. It's starting to become a bit more well known now, and people see the value in it. Um, so, and insurance companies now want to know what's your disaster plan. What would you do if? Those questions are always being asked, and also being asked by customers. You know, it's something that the supermarkets always sort of ask about business continuity and, and being able to supply in a timely manner. So that's something that that is on everyone's agenda. Yeah, and especially when we're talking about cooling units, time is always going to be of the essence if there is an emergency as well. So having that in place. And obviously, like, as you said earlier, you've got these plans ready just in case something does happen at these companies. So you're yeah. you're not having to think, oh, how do we respond to this? I mean, in the early days, before the cold store unit, I just want to say, I mean, it's an innovative game changer for us. We were actually nominated for the RAC Industry Award because before we had this unit, in an emergency for cold store, it would be a case of getting an external chiller system set up outside, having internal air handling units put inside. And if it's a big store, that can be sort of two to three days of installation time, which is not always right for the customer. I mean, it could mean that frozen food or chilled food needs to, to be thrown away at a large financial cost to some of these customers. So by having this unit in the emergency uh, response, it's by far a quicker solution than any current rental 
solutions company can do. And, uh, and just to prevent that risk and the waste to customers is really valuable for them. How quickly can you respond? I suppose it varies, doesn't it? We're trying to always have one of these units at least on standby within the UK. We have multiple units, but we were we have a contingency plan equipment that's in our swimming depot and it's there ready to be called off for anybody that has a contingency plan. And we've always got a cold store unit there um, we're with a driver. So depending where it is in the country, we, we might have one up in Scotland as well. So they're strategically placed so we can deploy them within a few hours where before... Um, you, you could be looking at 24 hours to deploy the equipment and then you've got the installation time. So this just really cuts down on all that. Next, we talk to Jonathan Barroso, Marketing and Business Development Manager for Dairy and Ice Cream, and Jean-Francois Pelletier, Category Director, both of whom are at MAN, a French fragrance and flavour company that supplies ingredients for a variety of products, including dairy and dairy alternatives. And the first voice you will hear is that of Jean-Francois. So MAN is, uh, uh, has been created 149 years ago, so uh, it's a quite old company in the flavour industry, but not the only one. We are number five in the in the ranking of the flavor companies in the world you can find on the different uh, ranking available on the internet uh, our location uh, are in uh, uh, 38 uh, countries uh, with uh, 74 location uh, in these different countries meaning we have different location in some countries because we separate sometimes uh, flavor and fragrance uh, production and commercial and R&D so that's why we have more locations and uh, the number of, of countries uh, our our DNA is based on uh, that the company has been uh, created on uh, natural extraction so our DNA is definitively and recognized all over the world uh, around natural extraction and natural uh, flavor formulation. So this is part of our expertise and that's why uh, sustainability is as well um, a very important topic uh, for all of us in the company uh, because we are treating uh, natural raw materials mainly and uh, this is the expertise we developed all, all along the, the years. Our activity is uh, split in uh, three main uh, categories, I would say, or uh, divisions. One is, flavor, is flavor, uh, which represents uh, 57% of the turnover. In flavor, we can find all the market segment, uh, food market segment, for, uh, with savory uh, divided in mainly in two, culinary and, uh, and meat. And sweet divided in, in uh, more than two uh, sub-segments with a confectionery, bakery, uh, yogurt, ice cream, beverage. In beverage, you have plenty of sub-sub-segments. So we are present in all the food segment market uh, with an exhaustive presence with uh, the same strategy uh, for all these uh, sub-segments, focusing on uh, natural extracts. Of course, we have all the other expertise. Eh? I don't want to uh, reduce our uh, uh, expertise portfolio to natural extraction or natural formulation. We, we can offer uh, all the palette of flavor solutions and a very uh, large palette of uh, delivery system, uh, which is uh, as well a part of our spe specific expertise of man. The encapsulation uh, 
knowledge at man is quite, uh, I would not say unique, but uh, very significant uh, compared to our competitors. So in the other division is uh, fragrance, uh, which represents 35% of the turnover. In fragrance, you have, uh, I would say, two subdivisions. One is fine fragrance for the perfumes. Uh, and the other one is, I would say, all the uh, fragrances for uh, consumer goods, for uh, uh, shampoos, uh, soap, uh, home care, and uh, others including as well some specific application for car industry or, or things like that, including as well oral care. The last division is uh, ingredients, which represent uh, 8% of the total turnover. Ingredients is a specific division. The, the objective of this division is to sell some uh, flavoring molecule uh, all over the world to different players, usually to our competitors. Um, and um, this is specific to this industry. Um, all the flavor players, industry uh, companies, has such type of organization. So everybody is selling to the others uh, some molecules uh, to source and to help to support the different formulations. And uh, what I would like to highlight is the growth of the company is mainly organic growth, which is quite. Uh, um, significant and uh, unusual, I would say, uh, in our in, the, in this segment. It's a big challenge to uh, generate 14% of growth uh, per year, uh, mainly with uh, organic growth. Nevertheless, we, uh, because of a market um, uh, request, we uh, operated some uh, acquisition in the past years to complete our portfolio of expertise. So in India, in, uh, in Spain, uh, or in different other countries. So do you provide flavors for both dairy and dairy alternatives? So I let uh, Jonathan answer to this question. Yeah, Jonathan speaking. Um, <coughs> yes, of course, we, uh, we provide flavors for, uh, for both dairy and, uh, and plant-based products. Um, of course, um, and, and obviously dairy was, uh, we, we have a deeper history in dairy. And uh, when I'm talking about dairy, I'm talking about all categories in dairy, including ice cream, for example. And the plant-based product has been uh, raising a lot the last years. And um, actually at MAN, we worked a lot on these products because uh, it's rising fast, it's evolving fast, and we have a lot of stakes um, to address in, in that one. So yes, we, we develop flavors and solutions because not only flavors, also uh, other solutions such as uh, paste for ice cream, even for plant-based ice cream, or uh, masking solutions and so on. So every uh, every kind of solution we develop for dairy, we are able to develop it for, uh, for plant-based products. And are there differences in how you approach those or are there any differences in the products that you sell? Do you have to adapt them at all? Yes, uh, de definitely. There is um, um, actually we, we stated an approach uh, for uh, the dairy alternatives, uh, what we call beginning dairy alternatives, and now we call plant-based uh, product because it goes far more than just simply alternatives to dairy. Um, we established like four pillars. We defined it like four pillars or dimensions uh, of any uh, plant-based product. Uh, as to uh, answer to a trend, specific trends can be a healthy product or an experienced product or uh, any of the, the trend that could exist uh, even in dairy. Um, an application, of course, can be ice cream, can be drinking yogurt, can be uh, plant-based milk, every, every application that can uh, happen 
a flavor, of course, this is the, the main uh, core of, of our business, and a basis. And of course, all those four uh, pillars are also pertinent for uh, dairy, but the basis is the real game changer here. Uh, because, of course, when you're talking about classical dairy, I would say you can have just whole milk or maybe skimmed milk, sometimes uh, goat and sheep milk, but it's quite rare. And uh, it doesn't have a huge importance on the final product. And uh, the influence and flavor is kind of uh, ne negligible. But in the plant-based, the basis is really important and have a huge influence on the flavor and uh, and also in the trend and the application we, we want to have. So actually, this is the main difference. If the basis is the game changer of this category and the other one is because it is a game changer, we start any concept by defining which basis we will use, which is not always the case in classical dairy. Here we, we are talking about a lot of vegetal basis available and we need to define it first before working on the concept which is kind of a different approach from uh, from the other uh, other dairy category because every basis will have its uh, trend will have its uh, efficiency in terms of flavor of application and so on and of course the final part uh, that can be different uh, in plant based is the, the optimization of basis with masking, for example, because in dairy, you, you are not thinking of masking uh, the basis because it's part of the product and historically it's uh, quite accepted by by the consumer. But uh, in plant based, it's completely different. We Once we chose the basis we want to uh, work on, we have to optimize it regarding the market expectation, uh, regarding the off notes uh, and the mouse feel and texture. So basically, these are the difference. We have the four pillars uh, that are specific to the, the plant-based, but the basis is the most important of this, of this pillar. We have to choose it before everything else and we have to optimize it. So these are the three main differences when it comes to uh, work on plant-based uh, instead of dairy. The most recent news that you had on your website was about uh, the three steps for dairy alternatives. Um, yes. Could you sort of explain that and how you've seen plant-based grow over the last little while? Okay, so I, I will start by uh, by, by the the end here. Uh, how we've seen plant-based grow? Actually, uh, as I mentioned, it's a rising topic. Uh, it's a rising segment. It already existed before, but what has changed is now it's growing faster and it's also more universal. And before it was uh, was a little bit uh, more niche and uh, it answered to different stakes. Now it's just, uh, you have uh, several stakes in terms of taste, in terms of nutrition and so on. So we've seen a lot of growth in this uh, segment, both in terms of volume, but also in terms of diversity. Uh, we have uh, many products uh, that's uh, been launched in the market and uh, this uh, create a new dynamic in this, uh, in this segment. And we know that uh, in five years, we have uh, multiplied by two the number of launches uh, in this segment. The volume and the growth is uh, two digits every year, even if even if the volume, relative volume comparing to other category is still smaller, but it's raising a lot and faster than other uh, category. And in some countries, uh, especially in Western Europe, um, now it's 
one of the most important category uh, in, in, in the segment. So we, we, we have to pay attention and it's because we've seen it grow faster. Um, about the three steps, it comes different uh, directly from this uh, from this observation because the first step we defined actually we think that dairy alternative is a race and we define three steps to uh, win the race or at least be able to compete in that race for any manufacturer. The first one uh, is to consider plant-based as a mainstream category so and not a niche anymore. So I, I explained it a little bit in introduction but um, we can find it sold uh, next to the classic dairy. Now uh, in the in when you go in the store, in the shops, you have uh, plant-based and dairy products side by side. The dairy manufacturers are now starting to be involved what was not the case before. Uh, before it was just pure, pure player of the plant-based. Now you have uh, various uh, dairy players that are uh, involved uh, in this category. Many positioning exists. Before it was mainly health or green oriented. Now the target is larger, with more universal, with different positioning. And uh, before it was more for uh, people that were, I don't know, lactose intolerant or some activists for the environment. Now it's much larger. And um, we have to consider it as a first step uh, to not have bias in the approach uh, as a mainstream category. And it is definitely a mainstream category, especially in Western Europe. And of course, the consequence of this uh, category to become mainstream is that people expect the same kind of experience than a classic dairy. Um, before, we were okay to have uh, a strong basis with off note and so on, because we expect people to understand that it was not a regular product and that was kind of normal to have this kind of off note. Now they want uh, the same kind of experience with more sophisticated and qualitative products. Uh, and in that way, flavors and innovation becomes key success factors. Um, we used to, to know plant-based with classic application and flavor. For example, if, if I take a quick example, uh, a strawberry soy yogurt was uh, a product you can find before. It was uh, an iconic product before. Now you can find, uh, I don't know, coconut cheesecake with strawberry and rhubarb and that's okay and actually it's a real product i've seen it in the market so this is the main difference uh it becoming more and more sophisticated and that is why here at mine we are focusing on innovation and application excellence to provide differentiating solution for our clients and i will finish uh, quickly on the last but not least point which is a clear uh, approach basis optimization plus flavor matching equals to winning concept. As I said before, basis is really important and my skin can become the keystone of a good taste experience. It is a, a starting point at MAN. We develop various solutions to optimize any vegetal basis regarding to off note, mouthfeel, texture and so on. But it is not enough. We think that for a complete taste experience, flavor must be perfectly matched uh, to this optimized basis because at the first step you optimize the basis and then you try to find the perfect flavor that will match to this optimized basis. So for example, if we take two vanilla yogurts, one soy based and the other one coconut based, the first one is step first step is to carefully choose and fine tune the vanilla profile that we would apply in these yogurts to create the best taste experience and it won't be the same in the soy yogurt that in the coconut yogurt. 
I see just on a different note that you've just won an EcoVadis award. Uh, what does that mean to your company? So we are very proud to have been uh, uh, rewarded at the platinum level <clears throat> and to be part of the 1% of the company uh, audited for uh, such uh, label, I would say. It's a result of a significant work um, and a priority for the company around the environment, uh, uh, people, uh, social activity, local ecosystem and sustainability globally, I would say. We uh, have for a long time very strong poli internal policy around sustainability on the different parameters of the sustainability, including the people, not only, uh, but also the raw material and the environment. And uh, the best example, we have two, two very significant examples to share with you. Is the one is uh, an internal tool which has been developed a couple of years ago to um, formulate our flavors in a friendly ecosystem environment. This is an IT, IT tool uh, based on the 12 principles of the chemistry, resumed to seven taking account about the uh, risk, the level of uh, the quantity of energy, the waste, the carbon footprint and so on, different seven parameters. And that uh, principle are now uh, integrated in our system of formulation and instant instantly we can see, see if we are at the right level. Second is our engagement in Madagascar for vanilla. We are engaged there uh, for more than uh, 40 years now. Our uh, strategy and um, objective from the beginning was to, uh, to work on a 100% sustainable ecosystem for sourcing vanilla. Uh, so that means uh, we have annual program uh, alone or with partners, with some customers, to develop some uh, social act actions or program or plans uh, around school, around uh, direct environment footprint, around uh, education, around uh, agricultural practices and pesticides, for instance, to uh, make uh, our activity as much as possible uh, respectful to the environment and to the ecos local ecosystem, to the people, not only uh, for education, but with the salary level, money power of the, of the, uh, of the farmers we are working with. And uh, we are very proud of this uh, of this product program in Madagascar, uh, and this is part of our strengths uh, to be able to show uh, we are not there to source only vanilla beans. We are there to develop and to 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 make this uh, business sustainable for everybody, starting by the farmer. Next. It's to Paris for the Salon de Fromage and the first of our interviews from the event. Charles Duke is the Managing Director for the Americas for the French Dairy Board. So it's his job to promote French dairy products in the Americas. Right, so I work for the, uh, the French Dairy Board, which in French is Le Quignel. So it's, uh, we represent the entire dairy industry here in France. And I'm based in New York. I manage North and South America. We have a lot of promotions going on in marketing. We do our own financing and we're also financed by the European Union in certain cases. They pay up to 80% of the, the budgets in, in some of these countries. Uh, the countries are chosen via mature markets like the US that we've been doing stuff for at least 10 years. And then there's emerging markets like Colombia, Mexico, Brazil, etc., where the European Union has focused on um, 
creating free trade agreements or modernizing agreements that already exist in order to increase the uh, dairy imports, dairy exports from Europe to, uh, to these countries. So they're all showing a lot of potential, they're all showing a lot of growth. There are a lot of barriers in Latin America as far as uh, tariffs and uh, bureaucracy, but uh, with these new agreements they seem to be opening up and the idea is for the tariffs to lower in the next 10 years to become eventually zero. And, and the organization deals with all dairy products? Yeah, the organization deals with, uh, we have four different colleges that represent the entire industry, so we have the cooperatives, the producers, the milk transformers or the industrial companies and also the retail, retail is uh, the last piece that joined us this year in order to have the complete uh, chain from producer all the way to uh, retail consumer. And does that work for like the, the big companies like the Denon and Lactalier all the way down to the small Exactly, yeah, yeah. We have everybody that's included. I work with both Lactalis as I would work with Isigny, as I would work with uh, Delin, very small producers that export uh, small quantities via uh, exporters that are located here in Rangis, for instance, in Paris. And, and how would the smaller ones, how do they not get lost when compared to the bigger companies? It's not the same type of clientele. It's not the same type of clients on the other side. I think that in the U.S. we have uh, we're very lucky to have a large variety of French cheeses, and certain big supermarket chains are looking for more industrial product like Savencia, like Lactalis, while smaller shops are looking for more artisanal, you know, products. So uh, there, I think there's a, there's something for everyone. Yeah. And how do they would they get in touch with you? Are they already is everybody? They're already member? members. Yeah, they all pay dues. The money that we collect from the companies, we use it for research and development, we use it for marketing campaigns, we use it for um, nutritional information. So there's a lot of ways that we give back to all the producers and the, and the companies here in France. And I guess you said you're based in New York, but there yeah. are equivalents of what you do in other countries or other regions? Right, so I have colleagues that, uh, that also uh, focus on different regions. So I have one colleague who's in China who manages Asia. I have one who manages the Middle East. I have um, another one who's starting Africa right now. We're starting new campaigns with Africa. And, and I manage uh, the Americas. Right. And there's also people, obviously, who manage Europe. Right. Yeah. And, and it's a, it's a quite an old organization, isn't it? Yeah, we've been around since uh, you know the beginning of the 20th century, but uh, officially since 1973 as a non-for-profit association. Yeah, and, and obviously, as you said, the, the ties with um, with the European Union. The, the ties with the European Union are recent. Uh, I would say they're probably six years old, where Europe has decided to invest money on export. And so they've been helping us by creating these campaigns, which are open to all European companies. It's not only us, it's usually uh, associations or um, interbranch organizations like ours or consortiums in general that could uh, receive money in order to help them promote their product abroad. And now we have a startup that is introducing more fermented foods, including dairy, to France. They've started with two kefir lines, or kefir, one dairy and one vegan. And to tell us more about the company and its products is one of the co-founders, Constantine Bretonneau. Can you tell me a bit about the company? Because I guess it's very new. Yes. So my company is called uh, Shah. It's a French company. We started uh, less than a year ago. We are specialized in fermented food. And uh, we started with Greek fermented food. 
so we are uh, proposing right now milk kefir and uh, vegan kefir. So it's a fermented drink. So milk kefir, it's like a liquid uh, yogurt. So there is a lot of probiotics inside. So it's very good for your microbiota, for your health. So one glass per day is very good uh, for you. And for the vegan, we have the vegan kefir. So it's uh, based with uh, water and uh, sugar. And we add some flavors inside, uh, lemon, ginger, or peppermint. And, uh, and yeah, you can drink it like a, like a soda. Uh, instead of drinking a sugary uh, soda, you have an alternative. Uh, very good for your health also, with a lot of probiotics inside. Uh, and, and so, you, you, how many different flavors of, uh, of for the milk for, for the, the milk kefir. kefir? We have uh, with the goat milk, uh, cow milk, and sheep milk uh, plain, and we also have uh, cow milk with flavors, uh, peach and or lemon. Yes, yeah. with the natural flavors. And for the vegan, you for the vegan, we have two flavors. We have a uh, lemon ginger or peppermint. And you also have other products as yes, well? Yes, we also have uh, fermented vegetables. So they are fermented f uh, for two to three months in uh, uh, water and salt. And uh, we have uh, some with stuff with uh, feta cheese. Or we have also classic pickles with uh, concumber pickles or um, eggplant pickles. And uh, yeah. And, and so it's a very new company, so how, how is it going so far? Yeah, it's uh, going very well. So in France, they don't really know very well uh, kefir. And uh, we are starting to be noticed because uh, kefir is uh, kind of trendy right now. And uh, ours is uh, from a very small production. So just available in France? For now, just in France. And we are looking for other, other countries, uh, maybe exports in other countries, yes. Yeah. yes but, but not too quickly, because if it's a small production... A exactly, not too quickly, exactly, yeah. yeah. Step and by step. Yeah, <laughs> and so uh, how has the show been? It's been yeah, good. It's very, very good. We are uh, meeting with a lot of distributors and also with uh, small uh, people with a small uh, shops and uh, small um, cheese uh, shops. And uh, yeah, yeah, it's really going very well. It's good. Good. And will you make more different products, new products, or you just yes, stick with what no, you have? No, we are going to do more products, uh, more flavors for the milk kefir. We might have um, one with a pomegranate, pomegranate uh, kefir. And for the vegan kefir, we are, we are going uh, to have a new one. It's uh, pomegranate hibiscus. So, and the company is Char, but the brand is? Maritza. So the brand is Maritza. And uh, for the because uh, we are going to uh, to sell also fermented food, but from other countries. Uh, so Maritza is only for fermented food from Greece. We want to uh, present food, fermented food from all the world. So we might go to there is a lot of uh, fermented food in uh, Russia, in the Bulgaria, and uh, in uh, uh, China also, and uh, Japan. So we want to. To discover a lot of uh, and, and introduce those introduce into exactly introduce a lot of fermented foods that we don't know in France or in Europe. And now it's time for our weekly look at the global dairy markets with Charlie Highland at INTL FC Stone. 
Okay, uh, Jim. Uh, well, just uh, in terms of the dairy markets this week, uh, as, as you may have guessed, it's all still about uh, the coronavirus and uh, the impacts that's having on uh, global trade and, as a result, global markets. A couple of interesting things this week. I mean, markets uh, over the last five days have continued to, to slide. They've continued to move lower. But I guess the all eyes were really on the, the GDT auction yesterday to see if uh, what the demand picture was really like out there. And that actually surprised on the uh, was surprisingly better than a lot of people had feared. Um, it did still drop on the last auction, but it was down just 1.2 percent, where general forecasts were coming in probably something like about 3 percent drop. It provided a bit of support to the market afterwards, and we had uh, across the board on both skim milk powder, whole milk powder, and and even butter market prices did move up after the. The, the GDT all across the world. So in the US markets moved up uh, quite considerably, especially on non-fat dry milk. Uh, European markets also moved up in the range of about 50 uh, to 60 euros per tonne. Um, and uh, the same thing on butter also moved up similar ranges. So overall, um, been a bit of a, a bright light. Uh, the demand side of things seemed to be better than people were expecting. China did drop off a lot on the GDT in terms of their buying, but a lot of that was picked up by uh, extra buying from Middle East and, uh, and Southeast Asia. So in general, um, things have uh, yeah, been improving a little bit over the last 24 hours. Thanks, Charlie. We'll look forward to next week's update. And another week has flown by. I had planned on bringing you an interview with the Institute of Food Technologists Chief Science and Technology Officer, Maria Velisariu, but it's long and the content is great, and so I didn't want to cut it, and also didn't want the podcast to be really long. So we'll save that for next time, when we will also have more from the Salon de Fromage, details about the British Cheese Awards, and an interview on how the Send a Cow program we talked about a few months ago on the show is helping to save wildlife in Uganda. And maybe we'll have more as well. Of course, we'll also have the news and one final plug for the webinar on March the 12th, which I may have mentioned once or twice already. And we'll also have, no doubt, more on the developing coronavirus situation. So, until then, take care, have a great week, and as always, thanks for listening. <laughs>